Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about positive parenting that raises optimistic and self-assured children. My first guest is Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, and this episode originally aired in November of 2018. Let's get to it. Dr. Tina Payne Bryson is the co-author, as I mentioned, along with Dan Siegel of The Yes Brain, as well as two New York Times bestsellers, The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, each of which has been translated into over 30 languages. She is a psychotherapist and the founder, as well as executive director of the Center for Connection and Play Strong Institute in Pasadena, California where she offers parenting consultation and provides therapy to children and adolescents. And she's also the mom to three boys. And she's with me, and I'm so happy about that. Tina, thanks for joining me on the show. Lisa, thanks so much for having me. I always love to get to talk about the books and the ideas and what it's like to actually do the the in-the-trench parenting work and how those ideas actually kind of what they look like and how we wrestle with them in our everyday lives. Well, parenting is a huge job, as those of us who are parents out there know, and it doesn't come with uh, an owner's manual or or, or an assembly manual. You just kind of, these kids come into our lives and boom, we have to jump in and try and figure it out. But thankfully, there are people like you on the planet that help us make sense of all of this. (laughs) or help us at least uh, learn how to be gentle on ourselves when we can't make sense of it. (laughs) Yeah, so true. Let's talk about uh, much of how we discipline. You know, my kids are now older. They're in college. So my disciplinary days are over. Thanks be to God. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, my, uh, my boys, I have my oldest just started college uh, this uh, fall. So I'm kind of feeling like, as I'm talking about all of these ideas, uh, for the first time the last couple of months, I'm thinking about all of this through the lens of what it's like to kind of launch a child and to say, have I done this well enough that he can handle himself out in the world? So it's kind of been a really fun mind shift for me. But So I've got an 18-year-old, 15-year-old, and 12-year-old. And I love getting to talk about discipline because here's the thing. We have really lost our way in terms of how we think about discipline. And the truth is when you understand a little bit about how the brain and the nervous system works, and you understand a little bit about how learning happens and the role that relationships play in all of that, most of what we do in the name of discipline actually makes no sense. It's actually counterproductive. So 
I love getting to talk about this. When Dan and I were writing No Drama Discipline, we had a colleague ask us to not put the word discipline in the title of our book, which is funny when you're writing a discipline book to say, don't use the word discipline. And the reason for that is because when people think about discipline, they typically have the connotation of punishment. And what Dan and I decided to do was to kind of reclaim the original meaning of the word, which is to teach and to build skills. So let's think about this for a minute. If we want, if the goal of discipline is to have our children become self-disciplined people who handle themselves well and make good choices, even once they're away from us or when we're not around and looking, then what we need to do is to help them build the skills and have the capacity to do that. So every discipline moment, every discipline struggle, the things that drive us the most crazy, those are actually all opportunities for us to understand and see the areas our kids still need skill building and still need to be taught. It's interesting you talk about discipline and punishment because I can look back on the times that were challenging with my kids when they were in their adolescence and teens that really were sort of, you know, like hair bending moments. And I realized that the yelling and screaming did absolutely nothing, that it was more about the leading by example and hoping that it would catch on eventually. Talk a little bit about your experience, both as a mom and as a clinician. Yeah. So the brain is either in a reactive state, which in our new book, we would call a no brain state where you're reactive and defensive and shut down and rigid. Or so the brain's either in that reactive state or it's in a receptive state, which we call a yes brain state. And a receptive state is open and ready to learn It can handle difficult situations and still kind of be in a place where it can make decisions. And so it's basically our best selves, these yes brains. So if the brain's either in a reactive state or it's in a receptive state, what's interesting is that the brain can only learn when it's in a receptive state. And in the yes brain, we call this the green zone. So when we're in the green zone, that's the only place our, that's the only state we can be in if we're going to learn. And so what happens is if the goal of discipline is to teach But our child, a lot of the bad behavior is happening because our kid is in a reactive state, right? (laughs) So they're in a reactive state, uh, which in our book we could call a red zone where it's really um, kind of like acting out. This is more aggressive, slamming doors, disrespectful, yelling kind of state. Or we talk about the blue zone, which is more like shut down, almost kind of withdrawn, disengaged, kind of more collapsed um, response. But both of those are reactive states. So The bad behavior often happens because our kid is in a red zone, a blue zone, reactive state. And then if our goal is to teach, then a lot, what, what I mean when I say a lot of what we do is counterproductive, we often respond because those reactive states are contagious. They push our buttons. Yes. And so they're in fight, flight, freeze. Then they say something really disrespectful to us, or we feel like they're being really ungrateful. So it activates our reactive state. And so then we actually respond to them in ways that send them further away from the the receptive green zone. So if we're yelling and screaming, we're humiliating, we're throwing out punishments, we're just picking some random consequence we throw at them. If we spank or hit or we're physically aggressive with them, all of those things make it even less likely they can learn. So let me just tell you a quick story about a moment with uh, one of my boys. So that'll kind of exemplify the principles in the yes brain, but also kind of the ideal when it comes to the purpose of discipline and and being effective. Now, I have to give a little disclaimer here because in this story, I'm going to sound like a saint 
parent. And in this situation, I did stay in the green zone myself and I stayed in control of myself and I was really intentional. But I don't do it like that all the time, Lisa. I have, I just want to be <laughs> oh, real. Thank you. Thank everyone. you. <laughs> um, and in fact, in No Drama Discipline, Dan and I both uh, tell a story at the, at the, in the appendix about a time we, you know, flipped our lids as parents. And I'll just give a little teaser that I threatened to remove one of my children's body parts. So, you know, I, it's, I'm not like green zone mom all the time or doing yes brain parenting all the time. So, okay. So I had this moment though, and I'm actually sitting in my room right now. And this is exactly where it happened. I was in my room and my son, Luke, who was about nine at the time came running in and said, JP five starred me. Now I didn't know what that meant, but apparently if you slap someone hard enough, it leaves a handprint that looks like the five points of a star. So, um, so I, I comforted Luke. I said, Oh, let me see. And and I, you know, I said, do you want to put a cool rag on it? So I comforted Luke and kind of got him uh, calm. And then it was time to deal with the perpetrator, right? It's time to have the discipline moment. I've got to go address this behavior. It's not okay for him to hit his brother. So <laughs> I take a breath first and make sure I am, you know, in the green zone, receptive, yes, brain person. And I come around the corner and JP is a raging red zone. His mu- and you can see this, there are physiological changes. His muscles are tense. His eyes are wide. His face is you know, red. Um, he's, I can like from across the room, I can almost feel his heart beating really fast. He's breathing fast. And so the typical parent response can range. Like some typical things my instincts might be to do is to demand he go apologize to his brother. Go tell your brother you're sorry, which JP's not sorry. He's in the red zone. He wished he had 10 starred Luke at this moment. Right. (laughs) And, uh, or to say, you know, go to your room. You clearly can't be with people. I'm taking away your play date for the day. Or to um, pretend like I'm asking a question, but I'm actually just yelling, like, why did you do that to him? Why would you hit him? You know, that kind of thing. So those are my instincts in the moment. But none of those things teach lessons, and they make him probably more reactive. Um, but I, I got to get this kid in the green zone if I'm going to teach him anything. So in the name of discipline, I actually do something very countercultural, but based on a lot of science. And what I do is I actually soothe him. I connect with him. And what my job is, is to calm down the reactivity in his whole nervous system and brain and body so that he can get to a receptive state so I can deal with teaching him, right? That's the whole point. So I reach my arms out as if he had been physically hurt. So he's in emotional pain, but I respond like I do when he's physically hurt. And I say, oh, JP, you're so mad. Come here. What happened? Mm. And I try and hold him. He doesn't really want to be held. He's kind of, you know, still too mad to kind of be still enough to even be held. And he starts telling me about what his brother did to him and how it was really unfair. And I tried to use my words and blah, blah, blah. So he, but he said, so I five starred him. And I said, oh, that must have made you so mad. I can understand why that would make you so mad. That was really frustrating. Luke shouldn't have done that. Now, by the way, I'm making sure Luke isn't hearing any of this, right? (laughs) Because otherwise, then we have a big party of red zone. Everyone joins in. So, um, So basically what I'm doing is I'm soothing his nervous system down with empathy and connection and relationship. Empathy actually is a practical strategy that's effective. It's not just this nice, lovely thing our kids like. But this works with adults too. Empathy actually down-regulates our nervous system reactivity. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, it's so <clears throat> no wonder it was so frustrating. Oh, I can understand that. So as I do that, it takes about a minute or a minute and a half and his body relaxes. He starts breathing regularly. And so my brain's like, okay, now he's in the green zone. Now I can 
be a disciplinarian, which means a teacher, right? Yes. Yes. So then I say, sweetie, you really hurt Luke. And I allow him to feel not shame where like you're a horrible, defective human that will never be better, but healthy guilt where his, you know, where he can kind of go, oh, and I say, you really hurt Luke. And I pause and I let him kind of sit in that feeling for a minute and his head kind of tips down. And that's a really powerful disciplinarian there, right there, just letting him feel that. And I say, I can see you feel bad. It's okay to be angry, but you can't hurt. What happened for you? How did you know you were mad? How can you make things right with Luke? And we walk through this reflective dialogue where we're kind of reflecting on his behavior. Now, Lisa, think about this for a second, because had I yelled at him or sent him to his room and just thrown a consequence at him, like I'm taking away your play date today, He would have gone to his room and he would have been spending a lot of mental energy thinking about how it's not fair. I love Luke more than him. This was Luke's fault in the first place. And basically, he would spend no time thinking about his role and actually being accountable for his behavior. But this other way where I my first job in the name of discipline was to get him to a receptive state so he could learn. And I did that through connection and empathy, first by making sure I could stay in the green zone. And then I could really help him think about and reflect on what his role was in it and how he was accountable for the choices he made. And then how can we do things differently next time and how can we make things right? So during that process, at the end of it, have I taught? Yes. Have I built skills? Yes. And I've given him an experience of moving from a reactive state into a receptive state. And over time, what happens when we help our kids move from kind of unbalanced states back into balanced states is their brain learns how to do that better for themselves. So this isn't just surviving the moment. It's also building the circuitry of his brain to be more balanced and resilient and insightful and empathetic, which are really the four pillars of the yes brain. This is incredible. Where were you when I was raising my kids? (laughs) You know, but it, th- this is applicable to, to so many other relationships as well. I mean, if you don't have a young kid at home, you could apply it to your spouse. You could apply it to a coworker. I mean, it's this is useful, really, yeah. really useful. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. The book we're talking about today is The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. To learn more, please visit www.tinabryson.com. On Twitter at Tina Bryson and Facebook, that page is Tina-Payne-Bryson-PhD. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Before we take that little pause, I want to share a little secret about myself. I am a health-conscious, clean-freak germaphobe who keeps a super tidy home using green products. For years, I've been a subscriber to Grove Collaborative for all my eco-friendly household needs. So I'm super excited to show some love for today's sponsor, Grove Collaborative, delivering a greener clean to keep your home and our world spotless with earth-friendly cleaning essentials. Healthy, plant-based, non-toxic cleaning products do work, and the good ones are actually more enjoyable to use. But where do you start and who do you trust? That's where Grove Collaborative comes in. Grove is the online marketplace that delivers healthy home, beauty, and personal care products directly to your doorstep. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of going green. Browse the site for thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products, all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and our world. 
With Grove, it's a one-stop shop for all your natural goods. This saves time, money, and hassle. I'm a huge fan of 7th Generation Disinfecting Wipes. Join me in more than 2 million households who trust Grove Collaborative to make their homes happier and healthier. Shipping is fast and free on your first order. Choosing products that are better for you and the planet has never been easier. For a limited time, when my listeners go to grove.com slash happiness, you will get to choose a free starter set with your first order. Go to grove.com slash happiness to get your exclusive offer. That's grove.com slash happiness. Now here comes that break. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back. We're continuing the conversation with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. We're talking about positive parenting that raises optimistic and self-assured children. This episode originally aired in November of 2018. Now let's get back to it. So we were talking about using discipline as a teachable moment and moving from this red or blue zone brain state, you know, where you're highly activated or detached into a green zone. And Tina, you can jump in at any time. And the, the green zone being sort of that receptive, calm place where you're able to actually take in the information that is being communicated. That's right. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we do is to say, okay, if my child is like going out of the green zone all the time, when I think about the behaviors that most concern me, that most drive me crazy, I think, okay, behavior is communication. So when my eighth grader comes to me at 6 p.m. on a Sunday night and says, mom, can you take me to Michael's craft store? I know he's not a crafter. Like he has a project <laughs> to do the next morning, you know? And so in that moment, I'm really mad and I'm saying cuss words in my head and I'm, you know, I'm just really frustrated with, with him. And, you know, and I launch into the lecture of you need to be more respectful of my time. You think I can just drop everything and whatever. But a couple days later, I went, oh, he told me something. He was like, mom, I don't have the executive function skills down pat yet to plan ahead and think about the materials I need and when I need, you know. So that meant if I wanted to change his behavior, I needed to change mine. So I needed on Fridays to look at him, look at his stuff with him and do some practice all of, with all of that. So I think the things that send your kids out of the green zone or the, or the behaviors that drive you crazy or that upset you, those are your kids saying, I need skill building in this area. So it's really helpful to think about behaviors, communication, about what they need to be taught, and then it's our job to teach them. I love how you approach all of this through empathy that, you know, and, and, you know, you and I during the break, we were talking about sort of the sweet spot or the honeypot of, of, of empathy and what it buys us really. Uh, it, you know, it's funny. I was, I know a minute ago, I said empathy is a practical strategy, but I was talking to a huge room full of educators a couple of weeks ago and this teacher raised her hand and she said, you know, I love what you're saying, but I just really want a practical strategy. And I said, empathy <laughs> is a practical, effective strategy. And it is, I think, you know, empathy and this, this applies to every human relationship, like you said, even if you're not a parent, this works with people because it's based on how the brain and the nervous system works. And as mammals, we are wired that in our states of distress, we have a mammal instinct to go to someone who will help us feel connected and protected. And that's called attachment or secure attachment. So what empathy is practical in that we know that someone sees our needs and they're going to help us through them. And so that allows us actually to feel physiologically safer. And when we feel safe, the brain knows it can kind of calm down. The nervous system can calm down. So 
empathy is a super practical strategy in any relationship. It just works. But I think the other part of empathy is, you know, there's many facets to empathy. Of course, feeling with someone or taking their perspective. But one of the things Dan and I wrote about in the Yes Brain Empathy chapter is that there's this other piece of, as you know, you know, people were talking about how there is, is there such a thing as too much empathy and there can be empathy burnout and all of that. But we have to think about there are many forms of empathy. And one is um, this idea of compassionate joy, which is where we can feel joy in reducing the suffering of another. And we can build this with our kids out in the real world and kind of fine tune their empathy radar to think about how they can help other people. We want them to be change makers in the world and to, you know, be people who contribute in the world. So, you know, I had like a typical moment would be like you're at a restaurant and you've got um, a a waiter that maybe is kind of rude and short um, in his responses. And, you know, my instinct immediately is to be like, why is he acting like that? What's his problem? You know, or whatever to kind of go to that place. But if we're being intentional about cultivating empathy in our kids, this is an opportunity. And we can say, gosh, you know, he seems like he's having a hard day. I wonder if something is going on with him. And I remember my my five-year-old at the time said, um, um, yeah, maybe his mom is sick or his dog just died, you know, or something oh. like that. It was really sweet. And I'm like, yeah. So I think if we could all do that, if we could all cultivate that idea of thinking about the suffering of others. And, you know, we don't know what's going on in people's homes. People are, you know, sometimes dealing with really hard things that no one knows about. If we can just approach the world with that kind of compassionate um, empathy, it actually can bring us a lot of joy in reducing the suffering of other people. I agree. When we talk about, you know, that compassionate joy and how that practice increases other areas of our lives, other skills, you know, like... Insight, balance, resilience, things like that. Yeah, you know, empathy. So, really, when you think about the middle prefrontal cortex, which is the frontmost part of our frontal lobes, it's the very last part of the brain to develop. This is the part of the brain that gives rise to our capacity for empathy, for insight, for emotional balance, for balancing our bodies, for attuning and having, you know, really um, connected communication, for making sound decisions, uh, intuition and morality. All of those things are housed in this part of the brain as it's connected to other parts of the brain. And so, Every time we cultivate empathy or we cultivate insight or we help our child go from a reactive state to a more receptive state, all of these things are actually making the prefrontal cortex fire and wire. So we're actually not just influencing the minds or the characters of our kids, but actually how their brain is wired so that it becomes automatic and built to be who they are. And, you know, I think, oh, go ahead. No, I just wanted to jump in and say the other interesting part about the prefrontal cortex that m- many people might not know is it doesn't complete its development until the mid-20s. So That's right. these kids don't actually, not these, our children, all of our collective children don't actually possess the capacity to fire on all cylinders that these teachable moments are what help build the skill. Exactly. And, you know, like all of us, but especially as while this part of the brain is not fully developed, when emotions run high, we're, that's when we're most likely to kind of flip our lid and lose access to that part of our brain. So we act more like reptiles, right? Yeah. 
So, you know, that's an interesting thing to do, too, is to think about kids' behavior is sometimes it's a can't instead of a won't. Like we assume they're choosing to be a certain way. But if they flip their lid and emotions have run high, they really don't have the prefrontal capacity. And, you know, Lisa, when I tell parents like, okay, this part of the brain helps kids be empathetic and insightful and make sound decisions and regulate their body and regulate their emotions and do all these things. Um, But they won't be able to do that perfectly or none of us can, but they won't be able to do that as, you know, in, in the same way until they're in their mid twenties. And they're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and I say, no, I know, but I know, but this is actually really good news. And here's the good news about that. This is the part of the brain that is actually one of the parts that is most able to be changed from experience. The deeper you go in the brain, the harder that's more, you know, it's much more um, hardwired. And of course, our genetics play a huge role in who we turn out to be as well. But because we have this long window until the mid-20s, that means we have a huge longer window in order to change and build how that that brain gets built. So And particularly during adolescence, that's the second most um, dramatic period of change in the brain. And so it's not too late for our adolescents either. That's another huge window where that part of the brain is massively reorganizing. So we build those skills by letting them practice doing those things, right? So all of those things I just mentioned, the more we give practice, the more that part of the brain will fire and wire. But I will also say, and this ties it back to the empathy and connection piece and why we want to discipline that way, is because one of the things that we know from the attachment research is that all of those things I just listed, except for intuition and morality, which haven't yet been studied, being able to be empathetic and insightful and making good decisions and regulating your body and brain and having attuned communication. And one I didn't mention is um, being able to overcome fear. Um, so it's a, it's all where our social and emotional intelligence and our resilience and all of that happens. Those are all outcomes of having secure attachment. So if you have a parent who shows up for you when you're in distress and helps you feel safe and seen and soothed, that's the empathy piece, Uh, I guess seen and soothed are both empathy pieces, then all of that leads to your brain kind of wiring up that prefrontal cortex in the most optimal way. So empathy is building the brain also. You know, when you talk about attachment, and I know that you've got another book on the horizon that is going to be published in 2019 about attachments, you say one parent. And I think it's important to really talk about that because many of us have the idea that, oh, well, if we don't provide a stable two-parent household, and sometimes that's not possible. But if you have one person that shows up. One person. That's what the research says. And, you know, about 40% of kids do not have secure attachment with uh, their their parent. Um, But that secure attachment figure might be a grandparent or a teacher or, you know, somebody else, maybe it's a, a pastor or a priest or a coach or whatever. But ideally you have it with more than one person. And so especially, you know, if you're, if you're a single parent home, if you have another adult that's in the child's life that shows up for them, that's awesome. That, that's all brain building stuff. But the research says just one person makes a huge difference in helping that part of the brain develop. And it's that person being stable in the way that they show up, that you can yeah. always count on them to show up, that they are the one that is going to reinforce that there w- it will be safety and stability no matter what, that somehow the outcome is going to be okay. That's right. And that's what it's really about. I mean, if you think about if you're a chimpanzee in the jungle and you hear a scary noise or you get hurt, going to your attachment figure is equivalent in the brain to actually staying alive. So, you know, this, what this is, is it's someone who helps us feel connected and protected, particularly in times of distress. And that's where, again, we bring back to the discipline is, 
oftentimes the discipline stuff is happening because our child is in distress. They're overstressed. They're anxious. They're, they're having a temper tantrum because they're super angry. So they're in distress. And that's when they, so the way I like to say it is when your kid is at their worst, that is when they need you the most. And they need us to kind of be a safe haven, which requires for us to take good care of ourselves so that we have the capacity to do that, to show up for them. And I do want to say one other thing about this, Lisa, is that we don't have to show up perfectly either. We don't yeah. have to be perfect. And the research is really clear that, you know, some some of the figures are saying that if a parent shows up and helps their kid feel safe, seen, soothed, and secure around 30% of the time, they can still have secure attachment with us. So this is really great news. We don't have to be perfect. And the key is that when we have ruptures or when we mess up, or when we don't make our kids feel safe or seen or soothed or secure that we will love them forever, um, we just repair and we say, I really wish I had handled that differently. I'm really sorry. I lost my mind and I'm going to go think about that. And was that scary for you? And you, you know, you just, you show up for them then after yeah. the fact. <laughs> well, and that, that, that willingness to be vulnerable and self-effacing and understand that as a parent, we, we, we do mess up. I mean, that's yeah. just part, it's part of the job. And I think t together in that dance with our kids is where that skill building and relationship building talent is acquired, right? That's how we, we Absolutely. learn. Or yeah. And then they also learn to, to widen their window of tolerance. That's a Dan Siegel phrase, the window of tolerance, to widen their window of tolerance for having conflict in a relationship. And then walking through the hard part of getting things back on track. And so it, it prepares them to be in relationships with siblings, with friends, with significant others. Um, and, and it also models for them how to make repairs. When we, when we show up and say, wow, I didn't do that well, and we apologize in a way that feels good to them, they learn how to do that too. Yeah, they do. Dr. Tina Payne-Bryson, I hope you're going to come back, hopefully with Dan Absolutely. Siegel, and we'll talk about the new book, The Attachment Book, in 2019 to learn more about the work of Dr. Tina Payne-Bryson and The Yes Brain, How to Cultivate Courage, Curiosity, and Resilience in Your Child. Please visit uh, www.tinabryson.com, on Twitter at Tina Bryson, and on Facebook, that page is Tina Payne-Bryson, PhD, and there is a hyphen between each of those words. Tina, you are a delight. I'm so happy we got to hang out. Me too, Lisa. That was really fun. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Continuing the discussion about positive parenting that raises optimistic and self-assured children. My next guest is Dr. Shauna Shapiro, and this episode originally aired in November of 2016. Let's join the conversation. Ashana is a professor at Santa Clara University, a clinical psychologist, and an internationally recognized expert in mindfulness. She's also the author of Mindful Discipline, a loving approach to setting limits and raising an emotionally intelligent child. Dr. Shapiro is a recipient of the American Council of Learned Societies Teaching Award, acknowledging her outstanding contributions to education and a fellow of the Mind and Life Institute, co-founded by the Dalai Lama. 
Dr. Shapiro lectures and leads mindfulness programs internationally and has been invited to present for the King of Thailand, the Danish government, and the World Council for Psychotherapy, Beijing, China. Dr. Shapiro serves on the advisory board of how do I pronounce this, Shauna? Excellent. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> A leader in conscious business and has brought mindfulness to pioneering companies, including Genentech, Cisco System, and Google. She has published more than 150 articles and book chapter, chapters and has co-authored um, critically acclaimed books, including The Art and Science of Mindfulness and Mindful Discipline. Dr. Shapiro's work has been featured in Wired Magazine, USA Today, The Huffington Post, Yoga Journal, and The American Psychologist. Wow, what a resume and welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, we are delighted to having yeah, to have you here. Let's talk about mindfulness and parenting because some people are of the school of thought, you know, kids, they don't need mindfulness. They need discipline. They need, they need structure. How do we help our kids to be thoughtful, confident, and emotionally fit uh, citizens of the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an important question. And I actually wouldn't put mindfulness and discipline at odds. Um, so I think mindfulness can have within it structure and boundaries and discipline. And I think that was really the intention of our book is to say that often people think of mindfulness as just this very soft concept and, you know, very permissive parenting. And, and what we tried to do was really um, clarify and, and re, um, re-understand what the word discipline means and what the word mindfulness means. So I want to kind of step back and start there. Um, the word discipline often has a negative connotation in our culture and many people think it's overly harsh and antiquated, but the root of the word discipline is really about teaching and learning. And for me in the past, you know, 20 years of studying and research mindfulness, I've found that it's one of the most effective ways of teaching and learning. And so I want to explain to you a little bit why, first of all, mindfulness, the, the definition is to simply be present in a kind, open, curious way with whatever is happening. So even right now, you and I can be practicing mindfulness as we listen and as we speak. So mindfulness has these three elements. Intention, which is simply knowing why you're doing what you're doing, what's important to you. Your attention, which is present moment awareness. And then your attitude, which is how you pay attention with kindness, with openness, with curiosity. And so mindfulness is kind of the awareness that arises when I'm intentionally paying attention in this kind way. And what's interesting, it sounds pretty simple, right? Just be present in a kind way, but it's actually quite challenging. In fact, I'm sure the listeners right now have noticed that their minds have wandered off. You know, you and I have been speaking for maybe three minutes, but the mind wanders. And so part of mindfulness is learning how to train the mind to be here. Research from Harvard shows the mind wanders approximately 50% of the time. So that's about half of our life that we're missing, that we're not here, <laughs> right? And if you think about it in terms of parenting, um, we're, we're missing a lot of the moments with our children. And so I think the first step is really just to wake up, just to become more present and more here, which is where we already are. 
You know, I I completely agree with you. I think that, you know, the word discipline um, as a parent comes to mind um, something that is very structured and very, very linear. And I think for me, and this is really um, semantics of words, that the practice, you know, when I look at discipline more of a, as a practice, which mindfulness mm. to me is a practice, yes, um, it is a little bit more friendly. And that, and that's why I sort of challenged the word discipline in the beginning. And by the way, as a parent, I, I know full well that discipline sometimes is in order. You know, that that right. is very aware and mindful to discipline a child that needs it. But that this concept of being friendly and gentle with this practice of how we train our minds, I think is something that you, you, you do in your research. Exactly. And I think when we see discipline, again, as a way to teach and as a way to learn, it really changes the, the feel of the word. So the other thing that I was going to explain is how mindfulness is helpful in terms of teaching and learning, which is how I view disciplining is that when, when, you know, traditionally we think of discipline, we think of kind of this harsh, maybe even judgmental or shaming, you know, interaction between parent and child. And what we've learned is that when children or any of us, adults as well, when we feel shame, the centers of the brain that have to do with learning and growth shut down. So if I'm shamed or I'm afraid or, you know, I'm being told in school or by my parents that I'm doing something really wrong and they're making me feel badly about it, it actually prevents me from learning and changing my behavior because I shut it down. The, the, what's interesting is the alternative is this kind attention that we've been talking about. It actually releases dopamine in our system and it turns on all the learning centers of the brain. So mm. true and lasting change and transformation requires kind attention. Yeah. And basically kind attention is the shorthand definition of mindfulness, right? Because I talked about your attention and then how you pay attention, your attitude. And so this kind attention is mindfulness. And if we can learn to practice mindfulness as parents in our own lives, and then we can start to bring it and practice it with our children. And I really liked how you said that discipline isn't this one-time structured, like this is what you do. It's this dynamic evolving um, relationship to the present moment to see what is most skillful in this moment. Yeah. And this is very, very powerful for kids to learn at a young age. Those of us who practice mindfulness and meditation know the challenges that we have um, keeping keeping on point. And, we, and I, I mean, I know for myself, and I'm, I'm guessing you as well, that you don't have the expectation of always being fully present. You just, <laughs> you just, you, you do, you do and be, and sometimes we're more successful than others at the, at this whole process of just learning to be with ourselves, which I think we're very frightened of a lot of us. Absolutely. And I think it's, what you're saying is really important is that this is not about being perfect. This is not about doing it right all the time. Certainly none of us are present every single moment and certainly none of us are perfectly kind and equanimous in every moment. And so the other piece of mindfulness and mindful discipline is really um, how you approach mistakes, how you approach when you didn't do it perfectly and, and the importance of repair. And again, this is where self-compassion and kindness are so essential because if we shame ourselves 
if we beat ourselves up for not doing it perfectly with our children, it doesn't help us learn. All it does is, you know, cost us energy and take us away from our children even more. And so part of mindfulness is learning how to see clearly, see honestly what's happening, admit our mistakes, but then not shame ourselves for them. Use our energy to actually repair and make change. What are some suggested uh, vocabulary words to introduce when working with children to introduce them to mindfulness? Because, you know, we have to probably approach this a little bit differently than you would an adult, let's say. Right, right. I think the most important thing with children and mindfulness is to make it natural and fun and kind of use their everyday moments in their everyday life to explore it as opposed to having it be this structured thing that we're imposing upon them. So, you know, having them do actual experiential practices of mindfulness is one way to to help just introduce it in a in a very gentle way. There's a lot of wonderful programs. I'm thinking of Caesar Kaiser Greenland, who does amazing work with children and teens uh, down at UCLA. And there's a lot of books out there specifically teaching um, practices for children. Our book, Mindful Discipline, is really for parents to kind of help um, guide parents in in best practices for them and ways to become more mindful and then specific ways to create boundaries and structure with their children. Ah, so really what we're talking about is initiating the practice within the adult. The adult becomes more conversant and more able and then leads through his or her own action. Got it. I I, I do understand what you're saying. Now, we're going to need to go to a break in a minute. Um, But before I do, I wanted to um, just ask you uh, uh, to to describe the book that you've just written, Mindful Discipline, A Loving Approach to Setting Limits and Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child. Um, This is really about looking in the mirror first, no? Exactly. Exactly. One of the books, you know, that we were both, my, my co-author, who's a pediatrician, uh, Dr. Chris White, one of the books we were both inspired by is a book by Dan Siegel called Parenting from the Inside Out, where we really need to start with ourselves because what we model to our children, how we live, the, the emotional energy that we bring to them is going to impact them more than anything else. So if we just learn the perfect words and practices, you know, and tie it up in this golden bowl, bow, it's, it, it doesn't have the same impact. And so we really start with ourselves and that requires a great deal of kindness and presence and compassion. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a break. And before we go there, I want to give our listeners some information, how to reach out and connect with you. Dr. Shauna Shapiro can be found at drshaunashapiro.org. On Facebook, the page is Mindful Discipline Book. Once again, the book is called Mindful Discipline, A Loving Approach to Setting Limits and Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child. And Shauna, we recently had Dr. Dan Siegel on the show. He's been with us uh, before. And he is just, uh, he is wonderful. He really is a very special man. Well, he he and I are teaching another workshop together together. Next summer, we teach together once a year um, at Esalen Institute. So if anyone wants to join, it'll be next next August. Oh, wow. I may have to jump on up there. I, <laughs> I love Esalen. Here we are giving a plug for Esalen, but it is, it is magical. It is it's truly magical. magical. Yes. Yeah. We are going to take a break. 
and the tunes are coming any second. And when we come back, we can talk about the five essential elements of mindful discipline with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with my guest, Dr. Shauna Shapiro. This episode originally aired in November of 2016. We're talking about positive parenting that raises optimistic and self-assured children. So Shauna, prior to the break, we we agreed we were going to get into the five essential elements of mindful discipline. And I would love for you to share with our audience what, what those are. I mean, I know that unconditional love is primary numero uno. Talk a little bit about really what that means. Yeah, so unconditional love is is the foundation and it's really where it all begins because if you don't have that loving connection with your child, if you haven't created a safe environment, then there's no connection from which to make boundaries. And so it, it, you know, a lot of times parents can get compliance by using strong discipline, but um but the the attachment bond, the connection between parent and child is the most important. So even if you get short-term good results, you lose in the end. So at the foundation of our book and our model is really cultivating this unconditional love with your child and letting them know that there's, there's no, there's no possible way that that can be disrupted. Oh, beautifully said. And, and one of the other points that you talk about is the need for space, I think for taking it and granting it. Exactly. So so part of mindful discipline is is trying to demonstrate that at times it's important to create structure and boundary and rules, but in other times it's really important to allow the child to lead, to give them space to learn how to do things on their own. Um, so for example, sometimes when my son and I are hiking, I'll, I'll let him lead or we'll walk separate and apart. So I'm not always saying, oh, look at this or do this or go this way, that he, he builds some autonomy, you know, also with younger children, you know, you always see they're trying to tie their shoe and then the parent comes over and like, just does it for them. And so there's something about the struggle and the, the faith in your child that they're going to figure it out and the patience to give them the space to do so. Yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. And next uh, of the essential elements is the concept of mentorship. And we often don't think of ourselves as mentors being parents, but yet we are, we're the primary teacher. I mean, this is where it starts. Exactly. Exactly. So children need mentorship and healthy boundaries. And basically mentorship just provides 
the modeling and the direct building of skills um, that that we can offer our children. Um, I think a lot of times parents think that in order to preserve this kind of loving connection that we can't use strong limits and and boundaries. But I actually believe that um, children need that to feel safe. And there's something that we call a loving hierarchy where it's actually appropriate to have a hierarchy in the family and for the parent or parents to be the leader, to be the protector, to be the person that keeps you safe. And, and so that, you know, that modeling and those boundaries are an essential part of parenting. You know, it's interesting. I have, I have two children. I have a daughter that is 19 and a son who is 17 next week, in fact. And um, my son I had the other day I had said, you know, will you take this box out to the garage and put it in the recycle bin? And he was sure, 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 mom. He yesed me. And then lo and behold, I walked into the the garage and practically fell on my face over this box. (laughs) And I let out this howl, you know, this profane scream because I was so irritated (laughs) at him. And I just I moved the box to where his car would normally reside. And I just sent him a text saying, the box is waiting for you when you get home. I love you. Okay. (laughs) And he knew exactly what I meant. You know, it was, and I have to laugh because normally I would have roared at him him, and I was really practicing being kind, showing an example, you know, like I'm going to be an adult about this and not gripe at him because, you know. Right. So I think the first thing we need to do as parents is self-soothe, self-regulate get yes. ourselves back in balance, right? Kind of re- recalibrate the nervous system. You know, Dan Siegel, I love his his model of the brain where he says it's like a fist and the prefrontal cortex is, forms over, you know, the thumb and the amygdala brain. And he says, when you flip your lid, you know, the prefrontal cortex gets disconnected. Yeah. And, and then we're <laughs> not rational beings. We're like, we're <laughs> offline. We're like five-year-olds. And yeah. so- Savage. What, yeah, so what, and- what mindfulness helps us do is reconnect, recalibrate, downregulate the nervous system and come back into a space of presence and clarity where we can speak intentionally because so often when we speak reactively, we cause harm. And one of my teachers said, you can never call your words home. And I've never mm-hmm. forgotten that actually, because it's wow. so powerful. You can never call your words home. And so I think part of the practice for me as a parent, because I tend to be somewhat emotional and reactive, even though I'm a meditator, is um, is that pause, is just yeah. really coming back to what's my deepest intention? What is most important right now? Yeah. Um, if we have time, I'll actually give you a short example of that with my son. Please. Yeah. I would love to yeah. have an example. I shared my story with my son. It was, it was moderately so, successful. Now I want to hear, I want to hear professionals. So, well, just, just about coming back to what your intention is and what's most important. So some years ago I was traveling in Europe for a few weeks for, I was away from my son for two weeks and it was the longest we had been apart. And when I came home, I was feeling a lot of guilt and a lot of worry that I'd ruined our bond. And, um, I made a very deep intention that I was going to spend that first day home completely with him, not unpack, not check email. And I planned this kind of perfect day at the beach for us. So as I'm preparing everything, getting the picnic, everything ready, I'm like, Jackson, you ready to go to the beach? And he's like, no, I don't really feel like going to the beach. I'm like, what? <laughs> we're, we're going to the beach. I'm going to show you what an amazing mom I am, right? <laughs> he's like, oh, fine. So he gets on his swimsuit and we're going outside. I've packed up the car and he walks out the front door and he just sits down on the front porch. And I'm already at the car ready to go. And I'm like, Jackson, come on. 
And he just sits there, doesn't even look up. And so I'm standing there and I notice impatience and frustration start to arise. And I kind of am on my agenda, right? Right. And then I remember, what's my intention? I just want him to know I'm home and I love him and I want to connect. You know, what's the most important thing? And so I walked over to him. I sat down. He was actually looking at these ants on our front porch. And I sat next to him and there was this moment where I could feel the sun on our backs and I could feel his little body kind of leaning into mine. And that was it. That was the most important thing. Yeah, that was the moment, the golden moment. That was the moment. And yet we forget. We forget and we get reactive and we get impatient. And so part of mindfulness is just slowing us down and helping us remember this is what's most important. Yeah. Beautifully said. So we've got the unconditional love, space, mentorship, healthy boundaries, and then mistakes, the gifts of imperfection, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, and the, we talk about mistakes as really seeing them as opportunities that maybe they could be beneficial and nourishing rather than simply being bad and wrong. You know, as parents, we often think that we're not doing it good enough. And by making mistakes part of parenting, we can learn from them and they can enhance our vulnerability, our authenticity, our connection to our children. Um, Really, we see mistakes as the opportunity to be responsible and to try to um, own our imperfections, model that it's okay without shame, and, and then make things right and repair. So in this way, we model to our children, it's okay to mess up. We don't have to be perfect we're still lovable. Yeah. You know, and this is a really, really good point and one that I encounter practically every day, not just in in my own personal life, but with clients and working with them is that that fear of failure and, and perhaps reframing the relationship of what failure is, you know, which is really an opportunity to, you know, get up and, and do it again. Try, try again. Some, yeah, yeah, try something differently. It's, That's all it is. I mean, that's what Ram Das, um, he says, you fall off the path a thousand times. The trick is to get back on a thousand and one. Yeah, exactly. Right? We just over and over again. And, and what really prevents us from climbing back on is the shame because yes. we get stuck and lost in it and it saps our resources and our energy. Instead of focusing on what we want, we kind of, we, we spiral down to kind of the depression of what we didn't do. And shame, you know, is, is, you know, such a hot topic these days. And, and the idea of being in, in shame is that feeling as though that I am, I am bad. Not that I've done something bad or wrong, exactly. but that the, the essence, the core of me as a human being is unworthy of love, connection, belonging, and all of those things that are intrinsic to our, our well-being and our happiness. Exactly, exactly. And that's why for me, understanding mindfulness and really clarifying what it is that mindfulness is not just about paying attention. It's about paying attention with kindness and compassion so that we start carving out these neural pathways of kindness and compassion that can help prevent the amount of shame and self-judgment that so many of us carry. We are almost out of time. And I wanted to just touch upon one more point with you, which I think may strike our listeners as a bit of a surprise and how mindfulness leads to transformation because the state of mindfulness is one of being with what is in in our presence, but it's actually possesses the, the, is pregnant with potential 
to lead us across the threshold to, to transcendence and transformation. Yeah, I do believe that mindfulness is one of the most effective vehicles of transformation. And it's interesting because it is a little paradoxical. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> by by resting into the present moment, we're able to gather all of our resources. And by doing that, we're able to see clearly what the next step is. That when we're trying so hard to see with our mind or our cognitive brain, we, we're, we're losing all the resources of the body, the intuition, the emotions, and, and we're also disconnecting ourselves from, from life. And so what mindfulness does is it allows us to connect deeply with everything, to sense our interconnectedness, and then to move from there, from a place of our whole being. And I do believe that's what leads to transformation. I agree. Dr. Shauna Shapiro, thank you for being with us once again. Dr. Shapiro's book is Mindful Discipline, A Loving Approach to Setting Limits and Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child. To learn more, please visit drshaunashapiro.org. And on Facebook, you can find Dr. Shapiro at Mindful Discipline Book. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Tina Payne-Bryson and Dr. Shauna Shapiro, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to each other. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.